Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. I'm Bob Shrum, director of the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. Welcome to the latest episode of The Bully Pulpit, where today we're focusing on the politics of education and the increasing controversies that are affecting school boards around the country. Our moderator is an old friend, Alan Arkitoff. He is the Katzman Ernst Chair in Educational Entrepreneurship, Technology, and Innovation, with an interdisciplinary emphasis leveraging the work at USC Schools of Communication, Cinematic Arts, Medicine, Public Policy, and Business. He is also the founding director of the EDGE Center, Engagement-Driven Global Education, at the USC Rossier School of Education. Another very good friend, Lisa Korbatov, she is the former president of the Beverly Hills Unified School District Board of Education. I'm proud to say she's a member of the Board of Counselors at the Center for the Political Future, and her support has been invaluable. Nick Melvoy, whom I've known for years and years, he is the vice president of the Los Angeles Unified School District Board of Education. He chairs the district's Committee of the Whole, which is dedicated to bringing transparent conversations about LAUSD's budgetary process and priorities to the public. Pedro Negaro, whom I knew in an earlier incarnation and for whom I have immense respect, he is the Emory Stoops and Joyce King Stoops Dean of the Rosier School of Education. He is the author, co-author, and editor of 15 books, has published over 250 research articles in academic journals, book chapters in edited volumes, research reports and editorials in major newspapers. Darlene Robles, another leader in education, the former superintendent of the L.A. County Office of Education and professor of clinical education at the Rozier School. She is also responsible for the development of a new online master's program in school leadership. She leads the program in conjunction with faculty, external organizations, and she's an expert in the areas of urban education, program development, and school leadership. One programming note, our next Bully Pulpit will be Thursday, March 10th. There'll be a remarkable documentary with it's actually featuring the producer of this remarkable documentary on women's rights as we celebrate Women's History Month. And our special guest for this event will be former Senator Barbara Boxer, who is also a member, by the way, of the Board of Counselors at the Center for the Political Future. So, Alan, take it away. Thanks, Bob. You know, it's always a great pleasure to work with Bob, Mike, Kami, Erica, and the entire Center for the Political Future team. Um, They bring a tremendous amount of smarts and illumination to an incredibly challenging political ecosystem. Uh, On a personal note, uh, I once worked for Bob many eons ago, and I'm forever grateful to him and OC for the lessons and love they bestowed on me. In contemplating today's discussion, I couldn't help but think about Bob's good friend, Tip O'Neill, the former Speaker of the House, who is forever linked with the phrase, all politics is local. I'd like to amend that to all education is extremely local. And with that in mind, let's start off a discussion with all of our distinguished panelists about what happened 350 miles north of us here in L.A. a few weeks ago in the city by the bay, uh, San Francisco. 
Three sitting board members were recalled by 70% of the voters. And unlike the much-discussed partisan outcomes of the governor's race in the electorally divided state of Virginia a few months earlier, where education issues played a pivotal role, San Francisco voters had recently elected President Biden with 86% of the vote. So what we're seeing is definitely not just a Democrat versus Republican thing. So let me start off with our good friend, esteemed uh, LAUSD board member, Nick Melvoin. Nick, you're the elected VP of the LAUSD school board. You're currently up for um, re-election. Uh, once upon a time, if I recall correctly, uh, when you got elected, the combined school board races were the most expensive in U.S. history to the tune of about $15 million, of which your race was singularly the most expensive school board race in America. So you've thought about the power of elections. Tell us about what San Francisco and some of the of these electoral battlegrounds are, are meaning. Yeah, well, th- thanks, Alan, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you all and my distinguished co-panelists. Um, and thank you, Bob. I still bl- uh, blame Bob Shrum for encouraging me to run for school board in the first place. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, you know, I will say part of me was, is a little regretful of what happened in San Francisco because by comparison, they made LA Unified look so functional. Um, but <laughs> what, I, what I will say is that, you know, all politics are local. I also think school districts and school boards are where we are now fighting America's societal battles, whether that's masking vaccinations, critical race theory, uh, these things that affect, um, Uh, American families. And I think it has been at a national and macro level, a tool where certain partisan interests are saying, well, let's hoist this on local school districts because we know it's a winning issue. I think what happened in San Francisco, I think on one hand is an outlier and on one hand is not. So on the, how is it an outlier? It was this kind of perfect storm of, I will say, uh, you know, with respect to my colleagues who learned this work, like a very dysfunctional school board, who um, you know spent time when kids were physically out of school, when other schools, when other students around the country and the state, and even that region were back in school, spending time on school renaming uh, in a process that um, even even by those who supported the idea of revisiting uh, problematic names and icon uh, iconography, the process was botched. Um, they spent hours debating whether a gay father was diverse enough for parent representation at a time when again. Um, schools were closed. They had huge financial challenges. And then one of their board members were suing the school district and their colleagues for uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And and as you said, I mean, this was one where there was ire across the political spectrum. You had London Breed, Democratic mayor, calling for their ouster. You had Senator Scott Wiener, one of the more progressive members of the state Senate, who was calling for their ouster. So I I think it's an outlier in that they were kind of this a particularly egregious example. Where I don't think it's an outlier, and we are seeing this in, in districts around the country, is there is a call for parent voice and parent involvement and parents to not be locked out of the process. And I think that's where they fell at a time when they were asking quite overwhelmingly for schools to at least be open for some form of in-person learning, that they weren't. Um, that what we saw in San Francisco was parents saying, you know, don't take us for granted. Um, for too long, school board politics have been dominated by special interests unions, charter schools, billionaires. And you heard in San Francisco parents saying, you know, we're ultimately who is going to decide these elections. And that is a lesson that I'm taking uh, heed of and I think my colleagues should around the country. Lisa, like Nick, you have experienced the joys and sorrows uh, of, of being an elected school board member. 
what do you make of San Francisco in terms of both here regionally, statewide, and around the country? I spent nine years on the Beverly Hills School Board, and I was president twice. Um, I went through every imaginable, crazy, uh, unpredictable controversy, and some that were very predictable. What I took away from three school board members being recalled is, one, it's not easy to recall one, let alone three. I, everyone gets threatened for a recall. If Nick hasn't been, he will be. And I used to say to people who threatened me, okay, where do I sign up for this? I'll, I'll donate to recall me. This is a labor of love. This is not for the faint of heart. Being a school board member is an extremely time-consuming, difficult job where you're investing sometimes more time in other people's children than your own. I took away from this uh, three-person recall that parents have had enough. Uh, they spoke up, and when you disrespect parents, when you dismiss them, when you ignore their concerns, whether they're out of line or not, they're due the respect to be heard respectfully, engaged respectfully, dialogue, debated even, encouraged to continue showing up to meetings in a respectful manner. But you need to show them respect, and you need to listen. As I told Alan on the phone the other day, when a parent would leave their home at night after a long day of work or taking care of young children, and they come to a school board meeting, they have to wait because there's a lot of other people talking. I knew they had a real concern. I knew they were struggling with something, in some instances, to tears. It, it, didn't, it wouldn't be humane, it wouldn't be smart, and it wouldn't be kind, and it wouldn't be fruitful for me to, to be dismissive. I heard them out. I sometimes couldn't respond, but I always understood that they were there because something was going wrong with their children's education or their quality of education or their experience in school. So these parents basically said, we've had enough and we're going to show you the door. And they did. And I think it's instructive. I don't mind when people disagree. I mind when they're disagreeable about it, but also you need to be heard and you need to, you need to listen. And I used to tell parents, I heard you now, let me explain to you what's going on from our perspective. And I think when people feel heard, even if they don't like the outcome, they feel it's a fair process. When you don't listen to people and you're disrespectful and dismissive and derisive and you marginalize them, that's when they'll show you the door because you haven't treated them with the respect they deserve. They're there because of their kids. And they're taking time out of their busy day to come talk to you. And you serve at the pleasure of the constituents. And although your direct stakeholders are children and teachers and staff, the people who vote you in are the taxpayers and the parents. And you need to show some deference. So I'd like to ask Dean Nagara on the same point. By the way, I, obvious disclosure, Pedro is my dean, and uh, but I'm especially proud uh, that he's our dean. And he's brought a important visionary leadership role to our school and to educators around the country. And I like my job, so I'm not going to try and antagonize them <laughs> with inappropriate questions. But once upon a time, 30 years ago, earlier in his career, um, Pedro was an elected uh, board member in Berkeley, I think president of the school board there. And so we have this continuum. You've seen it from an elected position. You've seen it from the perch of being a leading scholar Help us make sense, Pedro, of what we're seeing out there. Well, you know, I think um, both Erica and, um, I mean, Lisa, rather, and Nick have alluded to this already. You know, you don't serve on school board uh, to make a big name for yourself. It really is a labor of love. It's really a question of public service. 
And many of these public servants are under great attack now because it's a political strategy. You know, Steve Bannon told us he was going to do this. He was going to unleash uh, the base and, and target schools. And they've done it over masks. They've done it over how race is taught in schools. I think the San Francisco case reminds us that sometimes the boards uh, do stupid things and are and should be removed. But I think more often than not, and I think Darlene will echo this, you know, most people don't even know who's on their school board. Uh, most often, uh, there are very few people who attend board meetings. And the board of the, the role of the board is, is pretty much um, outside of the public purview. And although it is important for overseeing, I think get, engaging the public is important, particularly parents. But I think what's happening now goes beyond that. A lot of the, the controversy we're seeing about critical race theory and masks are not from parents at all, but from agitators in the public who've decided to politicize these issues. And sometimes from unions who have, I think, incorrectly taken a position that, you know, schools uh, should stay online longer than they were, should have, and or, or that masks should be kept on. So I don't want to pretend the issues are simple, but I do think that by over-politicizing them, what we're seeing is many superintendents deciding to retire early, which is a huge problem. Many teachers also thinking about early retirement. And what we need to recognize is that for some of those who are agitating, destroying the public schools is part of the agenda because they don't care. Their kids aren't there um, and, and they don't necessarily believe in the value of public education. So this is a dangerous period we're in because uh, public schools are by far the most accessible institutions in the country and safeguarding them and making sure they can carry out their mission is of critical importance to our future. So important uh, what Pedro just said and thinking about short-term and long-term ramifications. Darlene, you know, where the rubber meets the road um, is or the superintendents who are the CEOs of, of, of their districts. I'm reminded of the fact that I think Reed Hastings, CEO of Netflix, but also a former state board member in California, has said that if he could do one thing to improve public education, it would be to get rid of elected school boards right? Uh, to let the superintendents, let the professionals, if you would, do what they need to do. You've been a superintendent at all levels, Montebello, Salt Lake, LA County. Tell us, when, when you see these kinds of political skirmishes, and they're not new, how do you deal with it? Because what Pedro just said is so important in terms of the, the practical realities of, I mean, uh, superintendents already have a short lifespan in their jobs, you know, less than three years. These are the stewards of 13,000 school districts. How do you deal with the politics of school boards? Thank you for that question. It's great to be here with such esteemed individuals. Uh, it's a pleasure to be Nick and Lisa and, 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 and of course, our de- my dean as well, uh, Alan. Um, I think I want to take it a different perspective because I, the politics have always been there. The politics of education have always been there. We've just kind of hidden it, kind of like we just kind of manage it. But I think what I would like to focus on is what I think of, of the experiences that I've had where if I was not engaged with my community on a regular basis with my board members as a team, things that would come up would explode. So I've always been very conscious that my role was to be out there with the board in the community. So when something explosive was going to come up, like a school closure or something that, that they would know us already. That they didn't say, oh, who are you? Where did you come from? Because then it's too late. 
So I think that's where I've seen more distrust is when those relationships with the community are lacking. And so you, and they are asking for support after the fact. And so it really begins day one where you have to interact consistently and ongoing on real issues that are impacting. As Lisa said, parents care deeply about their children. They're entrusting you. So if they only hear from you once a year or not at all, and then something that's very personal to them comes up, they're not going to believe you. They're not going to believe that you have your interest of their children in mind. So I think it begins there. Not that the mass and all of the polarization, as, as, as Pedro has said, there's a strategy for that. But it's better handled if people already know who you are, what you believe in, what you stand for, that you care deeply about their children. Going back to this example of San Francisco, your primary focus should always be the students. Everything else is noise. What's best for students? What's best for my employees to make sure they have what they need to support their students? Once you lose focus of that, yes, naming schools or other, you lose the, the heart of what your purpose and your goal in your career. And that's, that's focus on children every day, 24-7, seven days a week as a leader of a, of a school system, along with your board. And I think superintendents across this country that have done better through this crisis over the last two years have already had that in place. Their community knows them. They know they, that the board and the superintendent care about their, their children and will trust that they have their best interests in mind. When that's not there, any crisis, even a small one, will explode and everyone... Darlene uh, referenced that this is nothing new. Uh, it's, it's an age-old battle of, over what's being taught. Um, in the last year, last time I checked, 35 states uh, have, uh, are looking at bills up to 135 um, bills about governing what schools teach. So I'd like to sort of, again, let's open up for everybody, but, you know, we have a scholar in terms of Pedro Naguera. Once upon a time, John Dewey argued that curriculum should be relevant to students' lives. How relevant should the public affairs of what's going on out there right now, Pedro, be permeating the walls, the school walls? No, this is tough because, um, you know, what, what we're seeing is that the politics and the political controversies not only affect kind of social studies and civics, but also affects math and reading. You know, uh, we've had literally d- debates over whether or not we should teach phonics or some other approach to literacy, uh, whether how to teach math to kids. Um, I, I, where I would disagree with Darlene is I think um, that the level and degree of rancor has substantially increased. and. Um, so while education has always been somewhat political, um, we're seeing this uh, escalate in a, in a way that I think is um, unparalleled. And uh, I think it's going to make it extremely difficult for local boards to uh, make rational decisions based on evidence uh, when they feel threatened, sometimes even personally, um, by a, um, a growing number of agitators who are showing up at their board meetings. Nick and Lisa, Give us again the, your your from the perches where where you have sat as being elected on the on the boards and again Nick it's an interesting moment in time we have an exciting new chapter in LAUSD history with your selection of Alberto Carvalho as the new superintendent uh, we're coming out of hopefully not a lot more chapters to uh, the pandemic as it turns into an endemic tell us about that you know that teeter totter uh, between where the public is engaged where the board members are getting elected, where you have a new superintendent who's dealing with a staggering number of issues that are so deep. And again, issues that came long before the pandemic. 
but have been exacerbated. Uh, tell us, Nick, like, how, how do you divorce? Well, I guess the answer is I'm not going to tell you what to say, but you can't divorce the politics from the education. But give us a reality check of how it's playing out in real time and then to Lisa the same. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think we've forgotten something that Aristotle said, which is that it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. And I think this a lot about the critical race conversation. I mean, one, like Deed Nagara said, I mean, that has been so politicized and we are not teaching, you know, what is an academic university discipline in schools. But, you know, should students learn um, about racism and about slavery in, in their history curriculum? Of course they should. Um, and I don't know, you know, to, to Pedro's point about this, the heat being turned up, you know, when I was in high school, I had my, uh, for U.S. history, my history textbook, and then we had Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, which I still have on my, my bookshelf. I think right next to No Excuses, Bob Shrum's book, actually. And I need to get some of Dean Nagara's. But to me, it was, you know, we had the textbook, but then we had a, a critical discussion about, well, um, what is history like in the eyes of the losers? And it didn't make me hate my country. It made me appreciate my country and this, this uh, imperfect story that is America. And for some reason now, this idea of, well, if we teach about racism, we're somehow um, indoctrinating four-year-olds to hate their neighbor. Uh, like the pendulum has just swung way too far. Um, and so it's this, what I am trying to maintain is this idea of, yes, grade-level appropriate content, yes, in tandem with parents and with stakeholders and with educators about what is appropriate to teach. But this idea that we're going to teach schools of thought and curricula that not everyone's going to accept. But that, again, is the mark of an educated mind. And how do we do this in a way that is thoughtful and that is, is stakeholder driven? You know, and, and we see this now with critical race theory. Let's not forget a few years ago, what parents were really up in arms about was um, math, the way math was being taught, project-based learning um, and CGI, cognitive guided instruction. And it, it took working with parents to understand that there are different ways to teach math that are more inclusive. I myself was very confused because I learned, you know, rote memorization of multiplication. Now I'm in classrooms and kids are, they have their manipulables, they're finding answers in different ways, they're explaining their thinking. It's a much more robust curriculum for mathematics, but it took some explaining. And so that's where I think is the answer to kind of say what, um, what, uh, um, was, what Terry McAuliffe said in Virginia, which is that parents have no place in the classroom. No. But is the answer to defer and capitulate completely and not let educators be educators? And I think the answer is going to be somewhere in the middle. I mean, you, sp- you started your question about relevance. You know, I was a middle school teacher in South Los Angeles, and I wanted my kids to read Shakespeare, but I also wanted them to read Sandra Cisneros. I also wanted them to see examples of themselves in the protagonists and in the authors. And that was, that was a controversial idea even 10 years ago. So, you know, I think my, my answer is that we have to understand how schools can still be a place for civic discourse, which is hard when school board meetings, you can't even have civic discourse. That is the big challenge, I think, of the time. You know, it, it, Nick brought up the, the Virginia governor's race. You know, it was a reminder. So my old mentor, Bob Trump, would say, you know, words matter as uh, one of the great wordsmiths uh, in American history. And, and clearly things, the speed in which words can be moved and, and distorted uh, is extraordinary. And so um, the, the digestive period for a voter, for the public to sort through this stuff has changed dramatically. Lisa, you know, talk to us about, uh, you know, a word, you know, talking about words matter. So we're talking, we, we should always be about students first. We say those words, 
But you early on talked about parents. Nick just talked about it. Pedro and Darlene talked about parents. Clearly, you know, from when you stepped off of the board, there's been a dramatic shift. Yes, the pandemic has uh, has hit society in 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 horrible ways on, on multiple fronts. One interesting component has been it has changed the dynamics with parents, right? So, uh, if this was two years ago, um, you know, the the role of parents uh, was one thing to be said. It was another thing in terms of the reality, right? So what, what we have now seen is a three-legged stool of, of a whole different proportion, where the educators, the students, but now the parents, where parents for the last two years, many of whom would sit at the kitchen table seeing what their children were learning, interacting with the educators, doing little Cisco and Ebert focus groups. I like that. I don't like that. Tell me about the role of parents in the new world order and how that plays into the politics of education today. I left three years ago, right? I guess right before COVID, shortly before. But I have um, nieces and nephews who have small children in public and private school, one in New York and, and a bunch in LA. And I can tell you that two out of three are center left, okay? And they watched the Zooms and they were disturbed by it. They didn't feel there was, you know, they felt that the teachers union had pushed the administration to be so risk averse to the peril and detriment of children's education by not opening the schools. My niece in in, uh, New York has a five-year-old who came home and she couldn't understand what the heck she was saying. She went to school the next day. They had paint chips up and they asked every child to put the paint chip next to their face and decide what color they were. She pulled her out the next day. You know, these are just examples or anecdotal, but I will say to you that it's okay to teach kids how to think, which is what, what Nick was talking about with the new way of math. I also was during that whole stage, and I had math teachers up in arms. I had parents freaking out. I understand that a new way of teaching, a new, a new methodology, is, oh, change is always frightening for everyone. But this isn't about how to think. It's about what to think. So I disagree strongly with saying that a lot of these people coming up to the mic or going to meetings or agitators. I met many of them from Virginia and they were just moms and dads. This was grassroots at Loudoun County. Father came up, he was arrested, dragged off, I believe, because his daughter was raped in a bathroom by a transgender kid who the superintendent did not inform anyone or the school board and they put him over to another school where he did it again. So there's this arrogance of some of these school boards and superintendents who are very arrogant, dismissive. They think they know what's best for you and your children, but nobody knows best what's best for their child than a mom and a dad. Ultimately, I'm not a teacher. I don't pretend to be a teacher, but I did attend school. And I know, you know, when I want my child to learn, I don't want them to learn your version of history. There's one history. We should teach it with all its flaws. America has many terrible episodes of history, especially around slavery. But we also can teach how we've come far to better ourselves and to create a better and more just society, whereby the majority of white people voted for a first black president, Barack Obama, two times. So I think these are important lessons and important things to discuss so that children can have a more balanced view. And I spoke to an educator the other day of a renowned school, um, and he says he's getting frustrated by hearing 
I speak my truth. No, there's truth, and then there's your opinions. And so I want to say that I don't consider most of these people agitators. I consider most of them frustrated parents. I don't believe it's okay to threaten school board members or administrators or cops. I believe if you're supposed to be masked in a board meeting, you should comply. I think people should behave with respect and civility, and we don't have a lot of that on either side of the aisle, tragically. But bottom line is that they dragged a man off for trying to explain that his daughter's raped. They lied in open session that nothing ever happened like that. So, you know, there's a lot here to, to you know, basically unpack. And when you keep seeing certain school boards be this arrogant, this dismissive, this distant from problems, you're going to have parents who are going to behave, quote unquote, like agitators, because these are their children. This is their most prized possession. This is their treasure. They will, this is mama bears and papa bears, and they don't want certain things going on in their schools. And so I understood this as a board member. I also understood this as a mom, and I had a special needs child. And I can tell you, I understood as a mother of a special needs child and as a board member, how special needs kids felt through the crap. So I, I, you know, I had a, a pretty broad understanding of this. The last three years has been shocking to me. But I will tell you, when I had, we had some very big controversies. Darlene, I believe, was at LACO when we were going through permits. I don't know if you remember, Darlene, but we had pulled all the permits or most of them and for budgetary reasons and out of district permits. And I can tell you, we had police there. We had metal detectors. We called the mayor. We called the city council. Uh, we called LACO. We called our chief of police and they protected us. We didn't call the DOJ and the Biden administration and NSBA. We went straight to our local group to protect us. And they did. And we hired armed guards when we had board meetings. It was a very, I had to get walked to my car and notes would be left on my car. But you know what? This is not for the faint of heart. You just grow a thicker skin, but you need to be cognizant that parents have a right to not like what's being imposed on their kids. And instead of treat, instead of uh, doing some civics, why not do character development? Why not teach real civics like we were taught as children? There's something valuable in that. Absolutely. So I don't mind criticizing the United States. It's instructive. But I also think we should talk about the many, many accomplishments and that we are still the greatest hope to mankind. So I like to always remind people how complicated education is. And this conversation is, is a good embodiment of it. Pedro, your leadership, your thinking, your life's work is all about improving teaching and learning outcomes, life outcomes. With that comes this complicated ecosystem. Walk us through individual teachers, administrators, local school boards, county offices of education, state departments of education, national education officials. Where do you draw the lines? Or no, you don't draw the lines because back to the old, uh, all, politics is, all politics is local, all education is extremely local. But how do you balance this stuff without it letting it careen off the rails? It's getting hard, you know, we just have to face that, whether we talk about math literacy or uh, American history, it's getting hard. And we suffer as a result. We are a nation that is experiencing extreme science denial. We have large numbers of Americans who don't believe climate change is real. Um, large numbers of Americans who fear vaccines because they believe that um, it will somehow control them. And then large numbers of Americans who don't who want to silence the past and don't want to uh, because the only way you can really move on is if you understand. 
how our past shaped our present. You know, education, and I'll echo something Nick said a while ago, should, is designed, and, and Jefferson understood this, to prepare people to participate in democracy. When, when you have members of the public agitating, and I just have to say, because I, I, when I heard uh, Lisa say the thing about the rape of a transgendered student, by a transgendered student, I looked it no, up. No, it wasn't a rape of a transgender, it was a girl. No, no, by a transgendered student, of a, of a girl. I know that superintendent. I quickly looked it up. It's not true. And there are, it's been undocumented that it's not true. But misinformation is part of the problem. And this is part of what we also have to teach kids. How do we distinguish fake news from facts? So that, because they're bombarded by information on the internet. And like many Americans, have trouble knowing what's real, what's not real. And so education becomes more important. And, and the reason why it's so critical that people like a Darlene or a Nick on, you know, overseeing our schools is because if you don't have people with integrity overseeing what's happening in our schools, our children will lose out and not be prepared to solve the problems they're going to face as adults. Um, it, it's complicated. And, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit that when you're dealing with issues of race or sexual orientation, how you treat these matters in the classroom and at what age, this is not something that we should take lightly. And we need to prepare our teachers, and we do need to consult with parents. At the same time, we also need to recognize that there are uh, responsible adults right, out there, educators, scientists, who have thought about these things that we should consult and not allow politics to influence the ways in which our children are being educated. And that's what's happening right now. Darlene, you know, once upon a time, um, you wrote an outstanding book with some of our colleagues, I think it was Darlene Robles and uh, Dr. Franco, uh, I mean, not with Mar Maria Ott, with Maria Ott and uh, Dr. Franco, um, about a culturally proficient society begins in school, leadership for equity. When we're having this conversation, how much of this changes? You wrote that a decade ago. Mm -hmm. Does it change your views in terms of what's out there and where a CEO, a superintendent leans in? or is quiet, or where a board member leans in, or is quiet. And to Lisa's point about the, the board members being able to listen and be responsive you know, to parents. Again, help us. I know these are all very, there is no set lines, but talk to us about what you wrote 10 years ago. Uh, does it still hold true today? And how do, how do we juggle these competing forces? Well, I, going to what you know, Pedro said earlier about you know, if we want our democracy to survive, we have to have an educated citizen. We do. They have to know our good and our bad as a country. What does democracy look like? It's fragile, as we can see recently in our own country with all of this nonsense of the, the election, what's happening in Ukraine with Russia. I mean, we have to educate our citizens starting from kindergarten, preschool on if we're going to continue as a democracy. It's, not, it's still very fragile. I recall in Salt Lake City when we, my board was discussing allowing a, a gay straight alliance club, an extracurricular club. And we had agitators, very similar to what you said, Pedro, from all over the state coming into Salt Lake to voice their complaints. And at that point, my board members said, we're only going to listen to Salt Lake City board members, which that's their constituency. But there was one parent, not from our community, thank goodness, who said, your job is not to teach my children to think. That is not your job. I'll teach them to think. That's a scary thought that any parent would think that our schools are not to prepare our students and children to think and be creative and, and think. So I think that when we talked, when we wrote our book 10 years ago, it was a very different time. 
cultural proficiency and being culturally proficient was not in, on, on many people's radar in our school districts. What we were teaching at, in our book was to let people know that there's an equity lens that we have to view our policies on. Who's being served or who's being underserved by the system that we're working in. And we had to really begin to look at that because many of our students are not served well. Many students are not served well by the public education system. And we have to call that out. Now, how we call it out and how do we engage everyone to do a better job for students who have been marginalized for a long time is something that we have to do consistently because if you're well taken care of and you're well served and you're used to having a voice in the system, your child is going to do fine. But for many in our community, they don't have voice. They don't have access to, to policymakers. We need to take this, what happened these last two years, where board meetings have now been more transparent because more of them have been online with access to parents in many languages, on Zoom, on their iPhone, where they can engage with, with their elected officials. We have to look at the positive to turn it around to say, let's listen to them and be engaged. Because that's what we're talking about. Being culturally proficient is to engage all your community in meaningful ways around equity and choices that we give our students in schools. So I, I again, I go back to that one statement. Your job is not to teach a child, to teach my child to think. That's a scary thought. And I think that's what's happening right now in many across the country where they don't see our role as educators and school system is to create a citizenry that can be engaged in their civic uh, community and be thoughtful about what decisions they're going to make, how to be a critical thinker, and to contribute and public service as well. If we don't do that, we're not going to exist in 20, 40 years of what we've been accustomed to. Because life's changed. I know that as a young student many years ago, and probably the oldest one in this group, I never learned about the Jewish Holocaust, ever. The only reason I found out about it, I was walking home. I lived in East Los Angeles at, by Boyle Heights. And I was walking home and I walked into a little store. And the owner had his tattoo. And I was curious. I asked him. He taught me about the Holocaust. It was never, what else haven't we taught our young people to this day about our history and how we need to know it to be engaged as a citizen so those things don't happen again in our country or any else, any place else in the world. So, Darlene, by, by the way, I'm, I'm really proud. One of, the, one of our partners that we do uh, so much uh, good, thoughtful education work is the Shoah Foundation. And thinking about the teaching tools. Um, uh, in terms of what they've been able to do now in terms of teaching empathy through testimonials. But again, technology is allowing us to open things up where Darlene wouldn't have had that opportunity to learn it uh, years before. But I'm wondering how many school boards are still not allowing that to be done thoughtfully in a meaningful way, let alone what's happened to Native Americans. So I think that's something that we have to really push back as a superintendent along with the boards to understand why we're teaching this, explain this to why it's important to teach it so it doesn't happen again. Absolutely. Important as we're thinking about all the noise out there. I want to point out, interestingly, um, again, totally separate from this conversation, uh, it was Nick Melvoin, our school board member here, who with Jackie Goldberg, who may, they may not always agree on all issues, uh, together passed a board resolution uh, to put into reality a whole news news literacy uh, impact piece for LAUSD. And I'm proud to say that, and again, stay tuned. We don't need to go into selling what uh, or sharing right now what Rossier is doing, but we're going to be announcing a, a series of partnerships with the News Literacy Project to the very core of what everyone's talking about here. If you can't separate out fact from fiction, 
it begs a lot of questions about civics democracy. But I want to point out that it was Nick Melvoin and Jackie Goldberg, who again, good friends, but may not always agree on all the issues, that understood the fundamental importance of thinking about media literacy, news literacy, and making it as agnostic, if you would, as possible for teachers, for students, for parents to be able to sort through, you know, all the all the information. So stay tuned, and we may even put uh, maybe Erica uh, in the chat something about news literacy project and checkology, which again very important. Um, this is again nonpartisan. Uh, very clear in terms of helping on the critical thinking and thinking through fact from fiction. Lisa? So I did some research on what Pedro said. The Loudoun County teenager charged with sexual assault at two separate high schools has been found guilty and sentenced to supervised probation in a residential treatment facility. So it is true. And that school board and that uh, superintendent are actually, you know, have some legal liability for not removing him immediately, even if you're not sure. If you're someone's accused of that, you do that just because you do that for the sake of your own skin, but the well-being of children and the school district. But to Darlene's point, again, I understand your point that it's about children who need critical thinking skills. I couldn't agree more. Again, it's not about what to think, it's how to think. So if the people teaching it are of one political persuasion, they're going to see it through their lens, which is normal. But if the parents in the population are center-right or center-center, and they don't appreciate the way your lens lines up with theirs, I think it's an important conversation. I'm not saying that it invalidates the school district or it in some way lets the parents supersede the school district. I'm trying to say to you that it's a problem, and that's where you're seeing the tension. And I think to ignore this is, is perilous for all involved. And if you want to talk about getting kids ready for the 21st century, math and science and robotics, we're failing in STEM and STEAM. We're failing dramatically across the country. Uh, you know, Northern Europe is beating us, India, many other countries are exceeding us with our kids' um, basically test scores. So, you know, I understand not all kids are academic. Then we have to, you know, do vocational and CT, career technical, you know, technology um education we have to do we have to do many things but we're not doing many things very well and a disproportionate number of our kids are coming out not proficient in math and science and even language arts and they are not coming out proficient readers and writers maybe not having librarian media teachers lmts and in, in schools across the country is a serious problem california has virtually none dc has none i mean you know uh, librarians are not just people who hand you books they really help um, uh, bring a, a phenomenal blending of curriculum through through the library, through library media technology. And we're, we're missing the boat on that. Without literacy, you know, they say you build prisons or you build schools. So I would say build, build libraries and house them with quality people who actually are LMTs, licensed, educated LMTs. We don't have that. And so it's easy to talk about all the soft issues of critical race theory, and parents who agitate and fake news. And I appreciate there's some relevance and truth to all that. Why not talk about the nuts and bolts? We have extreme poverty in many of our districts. We have kids who has food insecurity, shelter insecurity. They don't have internet. Their parents aren't home to manage them. They're working, struggling. How about other kids who are basically falling through the crap because they're not getting a quality education in STEAM and STEM? 
These are real issues. And this is, and we're not ready for the 21st centuries. Our kids aren't going to be ready because our educational system is not doing that well across the country. And it's not always a function of money. So I love the passion. Uh, I, I, I love, you know, the, the, the reality that I think our listening audience is, is getting is how, how complicated these issues are. And again, I go back to the fact that we've got to be oh so careful. Like, and again, people need to be able to sort through the information, which going back to this whole news literacy piece. But again, you know, 13,000 school districts, the ability where, and I, when Pedro talked about, you know, Steve Bannon you know, talking about, uh, or, or Nick, hijacking elections. The reality is, is that school board elections, I would assume, Lisa, Nick, you know, prior to LAUSD moving to an even number year, what was the maximum turnout for a school board seat? 20%? It's even. Lower. 10%. My recollection was 10% for most races. Uh, Like, Pedro, I don't know what you got 30 years ago. I mean, um, Lisa, but so the, the realities of the politics of education, one of the reasons I think Bannon and company, again, I'm not getting into the partisan divide, is that it's low-hanging fruit, right? Because it is so deeply ingrained in terms of how you move people, and it doesn't take a lot to move an election. If you only had 10% turnout and you can energize a base, look what happens. So let's do this. Let's, let's start looking. We've got lots of questions coming from the listening audience. Um, uh, I'm seeing one from uh, a sitting school board member in Florida. Uh, who's talking about where the Florida Parent Rights Bill and Moms for Liberty or, uh, originated. And the question is, how do we effectively organize to address such movements, which feel largely about discrediting, dismantling, and disrupting public schools in order to divert public funding in the guise of parental rights and school choice? So again, politics heavy, um, red, blue. Anybody want to take on that question? I have a dancer. Oh, but Pedro, you go. Pedro? So, you know, I recently, um, I, I recently did a, a, a book with um, Rick Hess, uh, who many people know is a, a conservative writer about education called um, in, in Pursuit of Common Ground. And, and, and we did a, a presentation on the book before Wyoming State Legislature, and we did a similar one in Kentucky, Red States. And what they were happy about, right, the reason why they invited us, the reason why we keep getting invitations, is because there are many reasonable Republicans out there who understand the importance of civil debate, not of, of making these issues more politically charged than they need to be, but of really making sure that we are able to provide kids with a solid education. There is no state in the country, including those that are now banning books, where you can't teach about the history of, of, of slavery or of, of the genocide against Native Americans. That's part of Americans' history. If we deny kids that, we are denying them the right to an education. So my hope is that eventually saner heads will prevail on both sides of the political divide, that we'll realize it's in our best interest as a nation to ensure that kids receive a solid education and take the politics out. I, I think it's hard to see how that'll happen in the short term, because as we know, um, we're in this period of intense polarization. But my hope is that eventually this will subside and we'll get back to the business of trying to do what we can to ensure that kids receive good education. But it's um, hard to imagine how we get there right now. As I said, proud that Pedro McGarry is my dean. And for those out there in TV uh, or uh, web-looking uh, universe, here's the book. And again, a really a, a great example, but all seriousness, 
about finding common ground, understanding these are difficult, complicated issues and search for common ground. And that kind of conversation is essential and sometimes gets lost in the noise. Uh, one, look, looking at the questions out there, uh, one was to, um, to the dean and to the rest of the panel, what proactive steps would you recommend boards and superintendents take to both increase public participation but reduce tensions and conflict? And again, for everybody, um, you know, that, that teeter-totter, if you would, about engagement. I run a center on engagement. I don't think there's anything more important than engaging the parents, the teachers, the students in ways that resonate with them. But Pedro, you've thought about it for your lifetime about teaching and learning outcomes, right? How do we do this balancing act? Part of what we have to do is we look, if we look at the places uh, where we're doing it well and try to build on that. So we had an um, interesting conversation last night uh, <clears throat> with Jim Burke. Uh, he was once the principal of Hamilton High. Hamilton High, about when he was first assigned to be principal, was about 90% black and vastly under-enrolled. Today, it is a thriving school, one-third black, one-third Latino, one-third white. Sends more black students to the University of California than most schools in the state. How did he do it? He did it by offering an enriched education to kids that prepares them for college. Wow, surprise, surprise. Why aren't we doing that in more schools? Why aren't we making sure that the leaders that we bring into our schools are supported rather than attacked by parents who, you know, frankly, should be spending their time making sure the kids do their homework and uh, get, get enough rest and aren't watching porn on the Internet. So, you know, I think that, 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 that we're in a state of, uh, <laughs> it, I laugh because it's so sad that, that this um, frenzy has been worked up. And again, I hope that um, with time, we'll focus back on what makes sense, what works. We have um, um, lots of examples here in L.A. of public schools that do a good job of serving kids. We need to figure out how do we make that happen for more kids. That's the work we should be engaged in. I want to add, because what Lisa said earlier about, you know, yeah, we need more teachers and librarians. You know, I don't disagree, but this, this, we're losing a lot of great educators and we're hearing from a lot of teaching and librarian candidates who aren't going into education because of the politics of education. So they're inexorably linked because, you know, a lot of teaching candidates are saying to me, why would I want to go in when I'm getting yelled at from teachers about what, from parents about what I'm able to teach? You know, we have for the first time in my tenure, thanks to federal and state relief dollars, enough money to have a librarian at every school, a nurse at every school, counselors, teachers. We can't find these people. And there are a number of reasons for that. But one is that this, this toxic uh, and really vitriolic environment is keeping people away. So I just, I, I mentioned that sobering note because I think if we can, if we can t- turn down the heat, it is a way to recruit. Because who wants to go into this industry right now when you can't win, when you school board members are resigning, um, and then a lot of teachers are feeling like they're just under siege no matter what they do. So, you know, it's... It, so, oh Nick, I, I agree with you that we had that experience too. We had to rejigger our salaries and we had to give much better benefits because people weren't coming to us because of that. And we did that. But I will tell you that when you go through a period where you're pink slipping large groups of people, they leave the, the, the career and they go do something else. And then when you're ready to ramp up, they're not there anymore. Now yeah. come with instability and all the craziness with COVID and, you know, the tension there, it only amplified the problem. I agree with you. But but historically, it's the pink slipping. It's the riffing that, you know, 
reduction in forces that has created this terrible shortage of quality teachers. And also we found through exit interviews that certain of our really high caliber computer teachers, as well as um, math and science were going into private industry. They were getting tremendous money in, you know, in all kinds of other private businesses. So they left teaching and, you know, who can blame them? They want to make uh, a better living and have maybe what they perceive as better working conditions. We'll agree there because I was a recipient of many pink slips, but I'll say, and then turn it back to Alan, you know, I'm glad that Dean Nagara mentioned Jim Burke because he's also an example of a non-traditional principal. Really high-performing teacher was plucked at a very young age. We weren't able to keep him in the school district. This was way before my time, but left to private industry. So it really is about so much of our business is about talent and recruitment and creativity and who's in front of kids. And we don't spend enough time focused on that. I think that's something we can all agree on. The best remedy for uh, people disparaging public schools and, and trying to do, you know, a charter and, and, you know, take the money to follow the kid, not the school, is excellence. Create excellent public schools like Hammy High, where my sister graduated many, many years ago. And all of my friends' kids are trying to go there because it's a phenomenal magnet. It's diverse. It's wonderful. Create excellence. My daughter, I pulled out my youngest out of the Beverly Hills district, School District, wasn't a good fit, and I put her in New Road School. New Road School is diverse. It's, it's, it's one of the most, it's the best example of what, California, what L.A. looks like. Lutheran Williams, the headmaster, created an amazing environment where probably 50% of the kids are well below the poverty line, and they are getting a stellar education, and his graduate gave the speech for Joe Biden at his inauguration, Amanda Gorman. This is an example of how you can get it done in the private sector. You can get it done in the public as well. But it takes a village. Uh, and, it, and it's, you know, I'm reminded, uh, I too am a Jim Burke fan. So whether it's Jim Burke, who led Hamilton as the youngest principal in LAUSD history, uh, to uh, New Roads, uh, which was created by Paul Cummins, no one has given more to the, to the, uh, the community. He created Crossroads, New Roads but constantly focusing on the underserved communities. That's, That's right. where he's spent the last 20 years of his life really focusing. But the key is how do you embrace and lift up these educators when the reality of the world is we had all these issues, the pink slips and everything before, and what we've now had to see is you know parents spitting on educators, dealing with the, the vitriol, and we, have, we had a teacher, an educator, and superintendent pipeline issue before, it's now epic. And so I think the common ground in this discussion is supporting and rising up great educators, right? Giving them the tools to succeed because they are the keys to the code. Um, I know we only have, you know, a couple more minutes. So let's do a quick, you know, wrap around. Lisa, last thoughts on school boards, education. And again, I'm reminded of as you're talking about, uh, you know, I, I think once upon a time you were able to work really well uh, with uh, what was your equivalent of Viva Che, uh, uh, as, as you once described it, uh, yeah. on, the school, on the school board. Share, share a little bit about that, but again, quick 30-second closing. Most of my, the best years I spent on the board were with four uh, center-left guys. I was the only woman on the board. And I got along with them phenomenally. We agreed on nothing, basically nationally, but we agreed on almost everything in the school district with debate. It wasn't like we were in lockstep. And and one of them was Howard Goldstein, and he's an attorney, and he voted for Bernie, and I didn't. And I called him Che Goldstein. He's my buddy Che. 
And we fight all the time about national stuff. But when it came to the school and city politics and local, it was common sense. It was what's in the best interest of children. Adults need to make decisions that don't benefit adults first and foremost, but benefit their students. And when we put that lens on it, all of our political differences evaporated. They didn't matter. They never even came in the room, except in a jocular, fun fashion. Nothing separated us except the common sense approach to school district and, 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 and putting forth education and opportunities to our students and how to treat our staff and our teachers and budgets and all that. We have a phenomenal relationship. We always did. This is, we couldn't be more politically apart, but it's about common sense. It's about having heart and, and common and, and you can't substitute it. it. It's there or it's not. And common ground is, is Pedro demonstrated in his book with, with Fred Hess. Nick, uh, but again, I'm reminded of what you did with your board resolution with Jackie Goldberg and a, a generation actually before in Jackie Goldberg Part 1 with LAUSD, some of her most important work uh, was done with Roberta Weintraub, uh, and they were politically polarized opposites, and yet they came together on some of the most historic, uh, putting students first, uh, led, uh, ability to change fundamentals, and they got it done. So, Nick. Quick thoughts on the politics of school boards and how we can make it better. Yeah, I mean a few. Uh, one, you got to start on what you agree with. If you and build out from the center. I mean, that's been my experience with with Miss Goldberg. I mean, we didn't even talk about charter schools in this conversation, which is just a um, data point that right now with CRT and masking charters, which were the most divisive issue when I first ran, are are not. But if if the board of LA Unified spent Every meeting talking about charters, we would never find common ground. If we start talking about things we do agree on, early education, um, career technical pathways, college pathways, critical media literacy, we could get 7-0 votes every time. And so one, one um, piece of advice is, you know, start with what you agree on. The second is that, and I know it's an ironic time but to say this, but the only way that we're going to start to change the culture of school boards and districts is for good people to, to go into it. And, and it's ironic because now people see school boards and they say, I don't want to go near that with a 10-foot pole. I get all these questions. Why are you running for re-election? And I have this like Hillelian response, uh, you know, if not me, who? Like we need good people to run for school board in your local towns and your big cities to change the conversation. And the last thing I'll say, Alan, is that, you know, our children are watching us. And when I see increases in anxiety and in uh, behavioral issues right now on school campuses, I just think to myself, what do they expect? They're watching school board meetings where people are throwing chairs. How are they supposed to regulate their own emotions? So no matter where you are on these issues, let's just be cognizant that kids are watching us. And if we're in it for kids, we owe them better. Pedro? I I just echo what I I agree a lot with what Nick just said. You know, it's ironic because Nick participated in the most expensive school board race in the nation. Isn't that true, Nick? (laughs) And uh, yet he's doing it again. I can only do one term. Um, and about a month in, I realized I'd made a mistake. And, um, and, uh, but, but what I, that actually liberated me because when people would threaten me and tell me, we're not going to vote for you again, um, if you don't do what we want, I'd say, well, you can't vote for me again because I'm never going to run again. So you just need to make sense rather than use threats to try to, uh, influence me. And, and I think that's kind of the stance we need to take that we're going to do what, what is it right? What, what makes sense for kids? and not allow the issues to get politicized um, the way they have. So I, I tip my hat to those who have the stomach and the backbone and courage to serve at this time. Thank you, Pedro. Darlene, I'll give the final word to you where, again, where the rubber meets the road on boards is. Well, well I think that relationship between the superintendent and the board is so critical. 
when they disagree or aren't civil with each other in a meeting, as, as Nick said, you're speaking volumes to many people who are now watching you now on Zoom and everything. That relationship, not that you have to agree, but there's respect for the professional who's an educator and for those who have been willing, as Pedro said, to give of their life for nickels on the dime, right, for what they do. But that relationship has to be from respect and trust and that you work together and that you look for the, the solution that's best for students, keeping your focus on students all the time. But that board superintendent relationship is critical for the, for the district to succeed and move forward on behalf of all the students. On behalf of Lisa, Nick, Darlene, Pedro, uh, Bob, which is somewhere up on, on in the sky, uh, and all of our friends at the Center for the Political Future, we thank you for taking the time on this important discussion. I think, you know, that, you know, as, as we talked about common ground from Fred Hess and Pedro Nogueira, it's so important to find common ground on these issues. And so importantly, uh, in terms of the common denominator, supporting great educators, giving them the tools to succeed, to do their important work. And to all of you out there, wish you good health. Uh, thank you for engaging with us in this important discussion. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future. That's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.